Welcome everybody to the latest edition of the Hitman Chronicles. This is your host, the original great Rob Silver. And today, we will take a look at the Jalei Zhang-Joe Joyce rematch. The Richardson Hitchens versus Jose Cepeda fight at 140, which is a huge fight to determine who will get a crack at Teofimo Lopez, Subriel Matias, or the winner of Devin Haney versus Regis Progress. So we'll talk about those two fights that happened today. First, oh, also, we will have our weekly Q&A session and an historical overview of two of the biggest fights of George Foreman's career. His October 30th, 1974 Rumble in the Jungle versus Muhammad Ali and his November 5th, 1994 fight versus the uh, Michael Mora. Um, I made a mistake. I recorded that part of the podcast already. I said 21 years later. No, it was 20 years between fights. October 30th, 1974, he fought Muhammad Ali in Zaire. November 5th, 1994, he fought Michael Mora. In Vegas. Uh, while I had the dates right, I, erone- I erroneously wrote in the article and read that they were 21 years apart. No, they were 20 years apart. Almost 20 years to the day, these two iconic fights. the t- Probably the two biggest fights of George Foreman's career. His biggest loss and the biggest win of his career. All right. Now we go to Wembley, Wembley Arena, London, England. The rematch between Jalei Zhang and Joe Joyce. And I was wrong. I thought Joyce would uh, bounce back and win the rematch. This fight was a worse beating than the first fight. At least the first fight, Joyce landed some vicious shots. And he was competitive before getting stopped. This time, first round, feel out round, you could give it to Joyce. Second round, Jang stunned Joyce early with a beautiful left cross, and Joyce's legs were shot. He Every time he got hit with that left hand, he was hurt. He was hurt several times in round two. Then in round three, again, getting hit with the left hand. Now, Joyce tried to step up his offense in the third round. He did the best he can. But with the additional 25 pounds and the severe beating he took took in the first fight, at the age of 38, it is criminal if you continue to allow Joe Joyce to fight, whether it's England, Mexico, the United States, the Orient. Joe Joyce should never be allowed to step inside a ring again. He kept getting hurt every time Zhang landed that left cross. And then, at the end of the third round, Joyce walked into a spectacular right hook that dropped him. He got up at the count of 10, but it was too late. Third round knockout for Jalei Zhang. And now Zhang puts himself in position to fight Alexander Usyk. Zhang's got this bogus WBO interim title that he won when he beat Joyce the first time. And get that bogus title the fuck out of here. But Zhang, with his two wins over Joyce this year, he's as good as anybody to get a shot at Usyk. Because uh, 
Ladies and gentlemen, Tyson Fury and Alexander Usyk are never fighting again. Um, I don't know what the fuck's up with uh, Tyson Fury. He's on an MMA tour now. Uh, he's got that cartoon character he's fighting a couple of weeks, that circus clown act show that I will not talk about on this podcast. I don't, do not tune in thinking that there will be a recap or a preview of that shit. Hell no! But Jang is a legit com- c- contender. Now, can he beat Alexander Lusik? I highly doubt it. But he's got power in both hands. And he's robotic. To me, he's he reminds me of Andrew Galata without the great jab. But he's got phenomenal power in both hands. The man can hit. He hits hard with both hands. And he's one shot away from putting you to sleep. Can he do that against Usyk? It'll be Southpaw versus Southpaw. I highly doubt it. But you know what? If Usyk can't get a, a fight with a, with a Fury, go ahead and fight Zhang. Uh, Zhang's earned it. And Joe Joyce, man, announce your retirement. Go go hang out with your family. And, I don't know, become a, become a trainer. Go teach kids how to box. But don't box anymore. Stay away from the ring. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to take a brief break, and I'm going to come back, and we will go over what happened between Richardson Hitchens and Jose Cepeda. Well, at least I did get one result right, one prediction right. Richardson Hitchens stepped up his game. He stepped up big time in defeating a world-class opponent for the first time in his career and he dominated winning every single second every minute of every round and thoroughly defeating Jose Cepeda just as I predicted I predicted Hitchens would shine today I predicted Hitchens would be that next guy at 140 pounds that the Sabriel Matias that the Regis progresses that the Teo Lopez's that the Devin Haney's have to look at and ladies and gentlemen Floyd Mayweather dropped the ball on Richardson Hitchens he had him lock stock he had him locked up he had him signed and nothing nothing Hitchens career stalled with Floyd stalled with Mayweather promotions and went to matchroom and now Eddie Hearn and now look I personally I like Eddie as far as he loves boxing his father was a legendary promoter and Eddie has all the enthusiasm in the world and I gotta give Eddie credit he tries his best to put the best fights possible for the zone and for boxing fans Without a doubt. I can't complain about Eddie as far as his love of boxing. But Eddie dropped the ball when he had Devin Haney. He's dropped the ball with Demetrius Andrade. He's had a bad history of promoting black fighters. Well, looks like he's got pro-grace fighting Devin Haney. And now, if I was Eddie Hearn, the only guy these two guys should fight unless... There's some type, and talk about the winner of Haney versus Prograce. The only guy they should fight is Richardson Hitchens, unless somehow, some way, 
they could get a fight with Tio Lopez. And I don't know about the relationship between... Oh, wait a minute. With, with Teo Lopez. Teo Lopez has been known to want to leave Bob Arum's nest. And he's had a lot of issues with top rank. So, you know what? Let me not... Let me not... Uh, how do you say it? Discount the fact that Teo Lopez could possibly fight the winner of Haney versus Progress. Ladies and gentlemen, do not, do not, do not think that this will be a cakewalk for Devin Haney when he fights Regis Progress in December. This is not a 100% guaranteed win, all right? I know Regis looked horrible in his last fight, and he, and he showed problems in his last fight with guys that could move, and... I haven't decided who I think is going to win that fight, but it's not a 100% done deal that Devin Haney is going to beat Regis Progress. What Eddie Hearn has to do is find a way to get Richardson Hitchens that next title shot. Richardson Hitchens is ready. He completely dominated Cepeda with that beautiful left jab, right cross counter all night long. And ladies and gentlemen, you know how good if you are a hardcore boxing fan... You know how good Cepeda has been. Cepeda has given everybody difficulty. Last night was the first fight, even Cepeda against Regis Progress. Cepeda gave Progress problems until Progress knocked him out late in the fight. This was the first time I ever saw Cepeda totally dominated over 12 rounds. Hitchens did whatever he wanted to do, and he's the type of boxer I love, and he's the type of fighter... My dearly departed father, the man I speak about all the time, the man that taught me the sport of boxing. When every time since I was eight years old, back in 1977, he would put me in front of the TV, in front of a black and white TV back in 77, a 12-inch black and 13-inch black and white TV. He sit me down, and while we were watching a fight, whether it was Roberto Duran, Thomas Hearns, Sugar Ray Leonard, Marvin Hagler, Aaron Pryor, Alexis Arguello, didn't matter who the fighter was. Because back then, those guys fought regularly on network television. He would tell me, he would explain to me why this guy is that good, why this guy's that good. Watch out, watch out for that, because my father was a former amateur boxer. My father won a prison championship. He won the Comstock Welterweight Championship when he was locked up back in 1970. So, my father hated hates brawlers. He never liked aggressive fighters because he felt their shelf life would be too small while he would appreciate the greatness in which they did what they did he always preferred the stylists the guys that could box make you miss reason why he loved Sugar Ray Robinson reason why he loved Muhammad Ali reason why he loved Roy Jones Jr. reason why he loved Floyd Mayweather early in his career my father died in 2000 so he didn't get to see Floyd at his ultimate peak, which would have been six months after my father died when Floyd mopped the canvas with Diego Corrales. My father would have loved Shakur Stevenson. My father would have loved Boots Ennis. My father would have loved Terrence Crawford. And my father would love Richardson Hitchens. Five foot ten, tall for 140 pounds. The man is a problem. And I don't want to hear motherfuckers come, oh, he's boring, he's boring. He does the basics perfectly. He's got a beautiful left jab. He does combinations. And he doesn't make you hit him. He's a beautiful fighter to watch. 
and Jose Cepeda was thoroughly dominated. Nothing Jose Cepeda could do, and it was even more impressive that it was a softball that Richardson Hitchens did this against. Oh, man, if you haven't watched the fight, watch it. And uh, a lot of you guys out there that listen to the program, y'all love the wham-bam sock'em robots, you know, like you saw, saw with Zhang knocking out Joe Joyce. All right, you like it. A lot of you guys love Tank Davis, all right? Richardson Hitchens would be a problem for Tank Davis. He would be a problem for Shakur Stevenson. He would be a problem for Devin Haney. He would be a problem for, for anybody. You fight Richardson Hitchens, he's one of those fighters that you have to have your A-plus game on. You know how much I love Frank Martin. You know how much I love Shakur. Those guys for Richardson Hitchens, it'd be a tough fight. Devin Haney. But we're looking at 140. So let's just look at 140. At 140 pounds, Sabria Matias, Teo Lopez, Devin Haney, Regis Progress, Gary Antoine Russell, all the 140-pound fighters, the top-tier cats, they have to step their game up when they fight Richardson Hitchens. And Eddie Hearn, please, whatever you do, Hitchens is ready. Get him the winner of Regis Progress versus Devin Haney. All right, ladies and gentlemen. So I was one, I was one in one this week with my, my predictions, and in a couple of days you'll hear my uh, Canelo Charlo prediction on my Canelo preview. But we still have a lot left on this program. Now on to the Ask Rob Silver Q and A session of the pro of the program. And now on to the Ask Rob Silver segment of the podcast. First question from my buddy Jesus. Hey, Jesus sent me a article, and he wanted to know what I thought about this. Rolling Stone founder, Rolling Stone magazine, not the Rolling Stones, but the Rolling Stone magazine founder, Jan Wiener, 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 I'm going to call him Wiener, man, fuck this dude. He has been removed from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame board after admitting in a New York Times interview that he excluded black and women artists from the magazine because they weren't articulate enough for him. And he was also, ladies and gentlemen, a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And for you guys that haven't listened, I and are huge soul and hip-hop fans, I have another podcast on another platform called The Legends of Sports and Music. And I have done over a hundred episodes on legendary artists such as Marvin Gaye, Tupac, Smokey Robinson, the list is endless. Sade, I've done multiple episodes on Sade and Mariah Carey. Artists like Mariah Carey and Sade should be no-brainers for first battle Hall of Famers. Yet... They still are not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. If anybody should have been a first battle Hall of Famer, it's those. Those two incredible artists. Okay? And the list is endless of people not in the Hall of Fame. Shaka Khan is finally going to be inducted next month. Shaka Khan, a legendary solo star and a legendary member of a legendary group in Rufus and Shaka Khan. 
It took Whitney Houston and Janet Jackson several years before they got in. Teddy Pendergrass is not in. Luther Vandross is not in. I've always said there was a bias towards black and female artists. And this clown held huge power as being one of the founding members of both Rolling Stone magazine and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They have huge influence. Huge influence on who gets in. And so this idiot mentioned in an article that he didn't interview or didn't want black artists and female artists interviewed because he didn't feel they were articulate enough. So Bruce Springsteen is more articulate than Stevie Wonder? Are you kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Oh. Hey, Seuss. For years, I have expressed on my ledges of sports and music. And ladies and gentlemen, you type that in. It's available on all platforms. Whatever platform you're listening to the Hitman Chronicles on, you, you could do a search and the ledges of sports and music you could find. And I've done great episodes, historical overviews on artists like Roberto Clemente and Hank Aaron. The list is endless. Over 100, and, over 100 episodes on legendary athletes and legendary musicians. So, Jesus, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because finally we could put to bed why so many great black artists and female artists are not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. All right, next question. Next question on the Ask Rops. And for those who want their question to ask... And it could be on music, it could be on sports, preferably boxing, life, you know, my uh, advice on stuff, I'll do my best. You go to Twitter, and it's hashtag AskRobSilva. Alright, next question. Uh, once again, uh, Jesus sent it a question, and I'm about to roast this motherfucker. Dave and his melting in real-time brain doing stupid compa comparisons. Am I being unfair with Dave, or does he indeed, or is he indeed a sucker and a moron for comparing Oscar De La Hoya with Roman Reigns while trying to minimize Roman's impact in WWE's recent growth? Jesus is talking about Dave Meltzer. I'm about to go on a fucking rant. Now, you know what? I used to read the Wrestling Observer newsletter for years. For over 30 years. Um, I used to subscribe to his website and listen to his radio, pro his podcast, his radio programs that you had to pay for on that website. Man, fuck that dude, man. That dude is so biased towards AEW, it's not funny. AEW is on the same level as the Jake Paul and Logan Pauls of the world. It's a fucking circus show. It's a fucking animal act. All right? The whole shit. How the fuck do you get one of the biggest stars of the last 15 years in CM Punk? You hire him and you do great business once you get him. And then you let that motherfucker beat up the goddamn entire locker room. I mean, what kind of a locker room lets one dude go in there and fuck up everybody? But then again, 
You got bitch-ass motherfuckers like Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks. Young Bucks. Dick-sucking, gum-cuzzling motherfuckers like the Young Bucks and Kenny Omega. Bitch-ass motherfuckers. Man, fuck them and fuck Dave Meltzer. When AEW first started, motherfuckers were ridiculing AEW because they had like a four foot ten wrestler named Marco Stunt. And what the fuck Dave did? He, oh, oh. People said the same thing about Rey Mysterio. He was comparing Marco Stunt to the greatest light heavyweight cruiserweight of all time in motherfucking Rey Mysterio. Are you fucking kidding me? Get the fuck out of here. These motherfucking AEW fans are the fucking worst. And Dave is the number one cheerleader along with his cohort Brian Alvarez they criticize WWE and they glorify AEW he made a comparison somebody was like well Orange Cassidy is not well known outside of the casual fan Orange Cassidy is another midget that wrestles for AEW he's a fucking midget he's a fucking vanilla Ice cream looking motherfucker, pale, no suntan, and he does hands in his pockets. He's fucking horrible. He's a fucking joke. He's one of the circus acts on that AEW roster. And Dave loves him. Talks about, oh, he's huge. The fans love him. He sells tickets. He sells merchandise. Man, AEW fans will buy anything, man. Fuck the fans. Fuck that promotion and fuck Dave Meltzer. He, let me get back to the the comparison right here, right? Here go. Dave wrote in a in a in a tweet. Dave Meltzer, just for when when um somebody said how big Roman Reigns has gotten, and Dave goes just for as compared to an Orange Cassidy, and that the casual fan knows who. Roman Reigns, they don't know who the fuck uh, Orange Cassidy is, which is true. You go ask somebody in my neighborhood in Harlem who's Orange Cassidy. They go look at you, who, who's that, a cop? Get the fuck out of here. But my neighborhood, neighborhood knows who Roman Reigns is. Roman Reigns is the biggest star in wrestling today, period. Period. End of story. So Dave wrote, just for a comparison, when Oscar De La Hoya was at his peak as a boxer, he did 100 times the media that Rain does, and his Q rating was 31%, and he did the biggest pay-per-views of his era. You're fooling yourself if you think most people know who Reigns is. Roman Reigns has been in Fast and Furious movies. Roman Reigns has been on The Tonight Show many times. The WWE right now is doing incredible business, blowing away AEW. Uh... Uh, Dave, when AEW first came out, he was talking about, oh, oh look at this. It's the, the, the product of the future. Man, it's a fucking joke. WWE is doing great business, selling out house shows in fucking Iowa and Nebraska, shows that don't even televise. I don't give a fuck AEW sold 80,000 tickets in London. That fucking promotion is horrible. Roman Reigns is a star. And he's the biggest star the WWE's had since John Cena. Period. End of story. And I don't even follow WWE. But I know who the fuck Roman Reigns is. And the only reason I know who Orange Cassidy is. Is because I, I used to work on a website that is in love 
with AEW. That fucking clown show. That fucking pathetic piece of shit promotion. All right. Enough of that bullshit. Bunch of gum sm- uh, 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 guzzling bastards. All right. All right. Sean Elliott sent me a post from um, that Boxing History uh, posted. The Boxing History. I follow Boxing History on Twitter. Um, excellent, um, excellent um, Twitter boxing boxing history account, and boxing history posted Muhammad Ali versus Joe Lewis. Who takes it? I told Sean I'm not going to answer that question because I don't do hypotheticals. But then Sean goes, "No, look at the comments. The takes in the comments had me interested in this one. So let me look at the takes. And you know, most of the takes are, 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 are good takes, and and I looked at the takes and. Some made sense. Some were ridiculous, calling both men overrated and and the fuck these dudes talking talking about. But anyway, I don't do hypotheticals. All right, I don't do hypotheticals. Both men are two of the five greatest heavyweights that ever lived. Period. If you don't believe that, then you don't know shit about boxing. Fuck you. Period. For those out there that want to claim that neither man are two of the greatest. Two of the five greatest heavyweights of all time. I am doing a historical overview on Muhammad Ali's career. Um, part five. Won't come out this week because this week we got this podcast and the Canelo Charlo uh, preview podcast coming up. But next week will be part five of my historical overview on the life and times of Muhammad Ali. Check out the first four episodes if you're new to this podcast. If you're listening to this podcast for the first time. And if you don't want to listen anymore because of what I said about AEW. Hey. I don't blame you. (laughs) They're they're not the audience I cater to. Alright. Now. (laughs) One final question. From my. uh, Brother Kobe. Kobe. Kobe asked. Do you believe Panama Lewis's story about the black bottle and does that change your opinion on Pryor versus Aguayo 1? Uh, Panama Lewis said that it was a combination of Perrier water and and water. And no, it doesn't change my opinion on Pryor versus Aguayo. I think after round 12, Panama Lewis goes, they caught him on, on, on audio and video saying, get get get, get him the, the, the bottle, get, get the bottle, get the bottle, get the bottle, the one with the special mix. Panama Lewis was Aaron's prior trainer at the time. Doesn't change my opinion on Pryor versus Arguello, even if he drank Perrier water. Alexis Arguello in the 13th round. This happened between the 12th and the 13th round in the corner where he got that special mix. In the 13th round, Alexis Arguello hit Aaron Pryor with one of the greatest right hands in the history of boxing. And Pryor took it like it was a slap. Like it was a slap from a little girl. His head bounced back like a bobblehead, and yet he kept on coming and kept on beating Arguello to the punch and then knocked him out the next round. That, you, could, you could drink Pepsi, Coke. You could get uh, uppers, downers. You could get, have, well, yeah, well, steroids was in, is in, was in its infancy back then. I don't know. I don't know what you drink in there. A, a, a shot of whiskey, bourbon, I don't know. Rum, vodka, nothing will help you take a shot from one of the greatest punches in the history of boxing, full flush. 
I mean, ladies and gentlemen, go to the prior Aguayo first fight and just zoom to the 13th round and watch that right cross that Aguayo hit prior with. Nothing would have helped him absorb that shot. So, um, real quick, to answer your question, Kobe, it will never change my mind. I, I, Alex Aguayo is one of my five most favorite fighters in the world. I was rooting, My father and I was rooting heavily for Alexis Aguayo that night as we watched that night, that fight on closed circuit. No, no. Um, doesn't change my opinion. It doesn't change my opinion Aaron Pryor, who I, uh, who I say is the greatest 140-pound fighter of all time, and I don't think there's any man that ever lived that could have beaten Aaron Pryor at 140 in Aaron Pryor's pride, prime. Not, at, not Floyd Mayweather, not Pernell Whitaker, not Terrence Crawford. No one. All right, ladies and gentlemen, now we're going to go on to my historical overview of two of the greatest knockouts in boxing history involving the legend George Foreman. And now on to the greatest knockouts in boxing history segment. And today we are looking at the number eighth greatest knockout in boxing history according to articles I wrote on FightGameMedia.com and the number six greatest knockout in boxing history both articles I wrote, both fights involving George Foreman. Um, the number seven greatest knockout in boxing history. You can check out last week's episode. I did a, a special edition of the greatest knockouts in boxing history, in which I looked at three of the greatest knockouts in boxing history. Um, so today, number eight and number six. And number eight, we go back to October 30th. 1974, the Rumble in the Jungle, Kinshasa, Kinshasa Zaire, Muhammad Ali versus George Foreman. And as I wrote, as a six-year-old boy, when Muhammad Ali fought George Foreman for Foreman's undisputed heavyweight championship of the world, I hadn't yet begun my fandom as a fight fan. However, at the time, Ali was one of the two names that my father would always talk about with the other being Roberto Clemente. My father taught me to read by focusing on boxing magazines and the sports pages of both the New York Post and Daily News. Back then, Ali monopolized the sports pages of newspapers all over the world. Over 90% of these papers printed articles claiming that the then 32-year-old Ali had, absolute, had absolutely no shot at defeating the powerfully built and strong 25-year-old foreman. My father told me that these reporters were all clowns and that there was no way Ali would lose to Foreman. Deep down inside, my father felt Ali would do whatever it takes to beat Foreman and finally regain the title that had been stolen from him over seven and a half years earlier. Ali was a huge underdog going into the fight. Pop thought that Ali, with his movement and experience, could take the champion into the later rounds before knocking him out around around rounds 12 or 13. Round one saw Ali dance and land several pinpoint combinations to the younger champion's chin. Although Ali was able to land at will, he was unable to keep the larger foreman from getting inside and backing him up against the ropes. Beginning with the second round, Ali decided to change up his game plan. 
Round two and three saw Ali employ his now famous rope-a-dope strategy. He would lay against the ropes and because forming through wide gaping punches, Ali would quickly counter with rapid left hook and right cross combos. Early in round four, Ali briefly stunned Foreman with a pinpoint right cross. Foreman was tiring because of the African heat, the constant wide punches he was throwing, and the wicked combos Ali was blistering him with. After four rounds, the young champion looked to have the older legs as he was visibly exhausted. For the first two and a half minutes of round five, Ali laid up against the ropes and, out and allowed Foreman to bang incredible booming punches to his ribs. Then with 30 seconds left in the round, Ali bounced off the ropes and battered a completely spent Foreman with sizzling combination after combination. Ali employed the same strategy in round six and Foreman's shots became very deliberate, very deliberate and telegraphed. For all intents and purposes, Foreman was done. Round seven saw Ali toy with a completely gassed Foreman. Foreman's punches were being pushed out there with absolute, absolutely no snapping them. Then, with 20 seconds left in round eight, Ali capped off eight consecutive punches with a picturesque, picturesque right cross that bounced Foreman off the canvas. Foreman looked like a man drowning in an ocean while attempting to get up. He did get up at the count of 10 as referee Zach Clayton counted him out. Once again, Muhammad Ali was the heavyweight champion of the world. That night, my father saw the fight on closed circuit. As back then, cable television barely existed, never mind pay-per-view. When he came home a little bit after 10 a.m. after 2 a.m., he woke up the entire house as he was hooped hooping and hollering about Ali's sensational victory. A few days later, my father began driving a 1971 Chevy Impala. He had won that car betting a dude in my neighborhood who was completely swiveled by pop, pop. <laughs> Ali would go on to reign for most of the next four years as champion before fighting one too many fights, which resulted in a lengthy, lengthy battle with Parkinson's before finally passing away at the age of 74 in 2016. It would take Foreman exactly 21 years to overcome such a devastating loss. As far as Pop's Chevy Impala, that car lasted him about five years before it completely broke down and died. And now, on to my sixth greatest knockout in boxing history, George Foreman versus Michael Mora, November 5th, 1994, Las Vegas, Nevada. And as I wrote, this article also can be found on FightGameMedia.com. And as I wrote, it happened! It happened! Those are the iconic words of Jim Lampley's call of George Foreman's improbable one-punch knockout of reigning world heavyweight champion Michael Mora in the 10th round. It happened nearly 21 years to the day that Foreman lost that same title to Muhammad Ali in the burning heat of Zaire when Ali knocked him out. Less than three years later, Foreman retired to become a preacher in his hometown of Houston, Texas. In 1987, Foreman returned to the sport after being retired for 10 years in order to gain needed funding for the youth center he had built in his hometown. It would all culminate the night he made the greatest comeback in sports history. On April 22, 1994, Michael Moore shocked the world by defeating Evander Holyfield to become the first 
ever softball to win the heavyweight championship of the world. Moore fought brilliantly that night with the usage of a great right jab and outfighting the legendary Holyfield to win a majority 12-round decision. Mora and his trainer Teddy Atlas gave Foreman the first crack at the title as it would net Mora $7 million, his largest payday ever. Many so-called boxing experts lambasted Foreman getting a shot for he had lost his last fight 17 months prior to Tommy Morrison and at 45 years old was several years past his prime. My father and I had no problem with Foreman getting the last chance at redeeming himself after collapsing in the Zaire's son 21 years earlier. My father also, while he thought Mora would win, told me not to be shocked if Foreman so- somehow found a way to win by knockout and he still had incredible ho- power and he was much physically bigger than the champion. Unfortunately, my father wasn't able to, to watch the fight that night with me as he had placed himself in the alcohol rehabilitation center three days prior to the fight. No visitation was allowed and there was there weren't any cable television access to the patients. That night as I watched the fight at my then girlfriend's house, Mora was totally dominating Foreman with a signature right jab and several clean left crosses. After nine rounds, I had Mora winning every single round and both of Foreman's eyes were badly swollen from the punishment he had endured. Then, the impossible happened. With about a minute left in the round, Foreman landed a short chopping right cross that temporarily paralyzed Mora and he shockingly went down. Mora knew where he was as referee Joe Cortez started his count, but his legs were frozen and unable to respond. Foreman had shocked the world by regaining the same title he had lost to Ali 21 years earlier. No less than five minutes later, my pager went off. When I called the number back, I was amazed to hear my father answer the phone. He had convinced one of the orderlies at the rehab center to let him watch the fight at the facility's break room. Only Pop could pull such a maneuver off as he laughed about how he told me how he told me so about the possibility of Foreman knocking Mora out. Foreman's second world title reign would be anticlimactic. He would be stripped of the WBA title when he refused to fight journey, journeyman and passed his prime former champion Tony Tucker. He instead fought the unknown German Axel Schultz on April 22, 1995. Foreman looked all of his 46 years on earth as he was completely lethargic in winning a highly controversial decision. After a rematch against Mora went, uh, fell through, Foreman was stripped of his IBF title, a title Mora would win by winning a decision over Schultz for the vacant title. Foreman would fight three more times before finally retiring at the age of 48 following a horrible decision loss to Shannon Briggs on November 22, 1997. Two weeks earlier, on November 8, 1997, Mora lost his IBF title to the WBA champion Holyfield in a rematch of their April 22, 1994 fight. Holyfield completely dominated him before Mora quit the stool after the eighth round. Mora fought another 10 years, but he never again fought for a version of the heavyweight title. Ladies and gentlemen, in a day or so, in a day or two, I will be coming out with my Canelo versus Jamel Charlo preview episode. You guys will thoroughly enjoy this. I will give historical overviews of both Jamel Charlo and Canelo Alvarez. I will give you a review, uh, my own review of the all-access two-part series 
that is currently airing on Showtime, Paramount Plus, Showtime On Demand, Showtime Anytime. I have four guest commentators giving their uh, predictions on the fight. I will do a watch along of both Jamel of a fight between Jamel Charlo and Brian Castaño and a fight between Canelo Alvarez and Caleb Plant. And then I will end the podcast with my prediction on who I think will win the September 30th, 2023 super fight between the undisputed junior middleweight champion of the world, Jamel Charlo, versus the undisputed super middleweight champion of the world, Saul Canelo Alvarez. Only Canelo's belts are on the line. I already bought my ticket to see the fight at the 42nd Street Times Square AMC Movie Theater. Ladies and gentlemen, I look forward to this fight. I think it's going to be a great fight. And you hear all about my thoughts and everybody else's thoughts that are guests on the, on the podcast on the next episode. Until we speak Canelo versus Charlo preview. I want everybody out there to continue to be blessed and be a blessing.